Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. Some modern translations lengthened it out a little. Jesus began to weep. But it's certainly one of the most moving, one of the most powerful of verses. It stands, I think, side by side with the Eloi. That is the cry of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In both cases, we're confronted with the incarnate Lord, the glorious Lord, who is impassable, he can't suffer. In his divine nature, who is immortal, he cannot die. And yet, he enters into our nature in such a way that he does suffer and he does die. That he suffers and dies to enter into our suffering, our death, our separation from God in order to make us new, in order to restore us to communion with God, in order to raise us from the dead. He who is without sin yet takes our nature upon himself, ravaged by the consequences of sin, in order to deliver us from sin and death and make us new and like unto his glorious self. Both of those are occasions where he confronts us with the issues of suffering and the struggles that we have in our lives. I again quite recently have dealt one more time with conversation with someone struggling with faith and with that basic question of I can't reconcile this with the suffering in the world. I, I don't know what to do with it. I can believe in a distant God who started the creation, but not one who's infinitely involved, and yet, though he has the power to change things, allows suffering in the world. How does it work? How does it fit? Well, philosophy and theology both fall short of giving us the answers that we need, but what if in the midst of our suffering we look upon Christ crucified? Where are you, Lord, in the midst of this? Where are you when things are falling apart, when My life is devastation. Well, he is not absent. He is in the midst. He is Christ crucified. What difference does it make when we're overwhelmed by our sorrows if we look into the face of Jesus and see his eyes brimming over with tears? It doesn't simply answer the questions of the mind, but it brings us in our souls, in our flesh, to the very living presence of God and in Christ. There is an answer, there is a response. God is not distance. God is not uncaring. God is at work. John 11, as a chapter, is a real gift to us. As we deal with questions of suffering, John actually gives us the opportunity to reflect on things but not just in that sense of an intellectual reflection, but actually invites us to walk with Jesus through the heart of the suffering, to see our Lord entering into that, not just looking on, but being part of what goes on. We come to that story, and here is Jesus weeping at the grave, and people are moved by that at first. You know, see how he loved him, but then very quickly... They move where we so often go. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And, okay, well, there are the skeptics raising the question, but it's there in the sisters as well. 
those who love Jesus and know that he loves them, who yet, when they meet with him, say first, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which begs the question of why were you not here? Why did you not come? Did we not send you word? Did you not know that this was serious? Why did you not come? Did he not care? One of the interesting things when we watch Jesus in ministry is that sometimes even with people he doesn't know, he gets up at once and leaves everything to go to be with them. A centurion comes to him, my servant is sick, and Jesus says, I'll go to him. No, 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 Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. A man whose little daughter is at the point of death comes. Jesus gets up at once to go. A woman comes and touches him in the crowd, and he stops to minister to her. Did he not care about Mary and Martha and Lazarus? Well, John goes to pains to make it clear that he did care. You notice the wording. They send a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's a dear friend. And further, John, just in case we missed it, underlines it and he says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then the strangest of words. So when he heard that he was sick, he delayed two days. He stayed two days in the place where he was ministering. We're not told that unfortunately he couldn't go. We're actually told that given that he cared for them, so he stayed. The little Greek word, the conjunction that's there, un, could be translated as therefore. So, then, it follows on what's just been said. Because he loved them, he delayed. It's not because he didn't care. There's something more mysterious going on. Well, what's going on? Some commentators will say, well, he just didn't realize how serious it was. Doesn't it say that he said this illness will not end in death? But then he adds those strange words, but this is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified. But did he not think Lazarus was going to die? Strange thing that when Lazarus did die, there's no indication that somebody showed up and said, oh, Lazarus is dead. No, Jesus knew. He told his disciples... In fact, did you not notice? Our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep and I go to wake him. He's telling them and they think not, oh, he's just saying that he's dead. No, they think if he's sleeping, he'll get better. No, Lazarus is dead. Another time I'll come back to to John and his puns again, how the plays on words really open up some of these things. But he knows He knows when Lazarus has died. Did he not know what kind of illness it was? He said it won't end in death. He didn't say he wouldn't die. He said this is for the glory of God. And somewhere there's a mystery playing here that we hit last week as well. Why was this man born blind? Whose fault was it? Was it his sin or that of his parents? It's neither. It's that God might be glorified in him. And there's something of that mystery at work here. Not easy to understand, but it's bound up again with the love of Jesus, not because he doesn't care. 
I don't know how all that works, but as you go through Scripture, you do see times when things that we can't follow, except in hindsight, do happen. Think about Joseph. Now, not the husband of Mary, but Joseph, son of Jacob. Joseph, who's, who's betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery for 13 years. He's lost to everyone. He tries to serve God, but he's, he's wrongly accused. He's in prison. When he thinks there might be a glimmer of light there, he's left in prison and he languishes. What is God doing? Well, we know there's a greater good coming out. It's another seven plus years before he is actually revealed to his brothers and in the midst of the famine when he is the source of bread in Egypt for his own family. Only then is he lifted up before them. But at the end of his life, not at the end of his father's life actually, not quite the end of his life, but with his brothers, when they're worried about what he might do to them after their father has died. We have those words. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We can't fathom in the midst of that story what's going on when Jacob's, Israel's heart is absolutely broken over his son. His son is lost to him. God is at work. If Joseph is not there in Egypt, where he is at that time, in that place, the people perish in the midst of the famine. Jesus went to the cross. The beloved son of the father went to the cross, not because the father didn't love him, but because of something of the mystery of the love in the very heart of the Trinity. Love for us. Love for the son. The mystery of his not just his crucifixion, but his suffering, his passion. All of that is somehow bound up in the mystery of the divine love for us, for his son, the love in the heart of the Trinity. Jesus knows he'll raise Lazarus from the dead, but it's not any less painful for him. The grieving is real. He knows that he will be raised from the dead. It doesn't make the way of the cross any less devastating. When Jesus arrives at the tomb, Lazarus has been dead for four days. It's irrefutable that he's dead. If you imagine that maybe the spirit hovers about for a while, that somebody could be revived in the first couple of days because every now and again someone gets laid out and they think he's dead, but maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe it's a miracle, but four days he's certainly dead. Martha can say when they go to roll the stone away, ah, I don't think you want to do that. This is a hot place. He's been dead for four days. It's going to smell awful. Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus goes to the grave. He's encountered Martha first, and those words, as I say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In Martha, we see some substantial faith and reflect on her on other occasions. Her, her statement of faith rivals that of St. Peter. And this is, a, this is a woman who's really anchored in the Lord. Mary comes out, and she's 
devastated. Same words as her sister, but she just, I imagine, erupts in tears, falls at the Lord's feet, and he begins to weep. He sees her weeping, those with her weeping, and I know this one. I sometimes talk about years ago, an uncle of mine died, and I he wasn't much of a believer, but not much of a churchgoer. My dad had asked me if I would take the funeral, and it was in a funeral home. And I loved my uncle. I could go through the service as long as I avoid looking at my dad. Because when I looked at him and his grief, I, I was overwhelmed myself. Jesus wept. See how he loved him. But then we hear that there's more than just the grief going on, that he was, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, which could be deep grief, but the words that are used to describe that are angry words. The Greek verbs, embramaomai, that's used for the de- being deeply moved, was one that was classically used to describe horses snorting. And I don't know how many of you are around horses... I think about a horse that's in the stall that's disturbed by something and is, they don't have paws. So they're not pawing about, but they're stomping the earth with their hooves and maybe even kicking the sides of the stalls. But worked up, the things are being contained, but they're really raging underneath. He was deeply troubled. He was, terrasso is the verb. And that's one you use to describe when waters are the roiling waters, you think of rapids and such, the waters that are really stirred up. This is anger underneath, but what's he angry about? Well, sometimes when we're really hurting, we get angry. I would tell my kids when they scared me that I would get angry, and it was the fear that was going on that was stirring that anger, but what is he angry at? Some have suggested he was angry at the people for for mourning, You know, this faithlessness in their mourning, and I do not believe that. I do not believe that our Lord is upset with us for mourning. When you love someone deeply, and that person is gone, the the empty space inside hurts. And it should hurt because it's a sign that here's one that you loved, someone who filled that space. Jesus wept. I don't think he's condemning them for weeping. Yes, yes, yes. There was an extravagance that would go on sometimes. You could actually hire professional mourners to weep and wail for you. That he might condemn. And when the little girl died, and he put them outside and said, stop that, Um, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Well, that might have been the extravagance. What is he angry about? Well, my sense is that his anger is at the devil. And that power of sin and death to, to corrupt and destroy and to cause all this distress. And that it's time to confront those powers. It's time to set in motion what will take him to the cross. And the image that's long been in my mind of this one is that when he comes to the grave, that, that the evil one or that figure of death is like a great crouching beast poised there over the grave, smirking and even stretching out its claws to torment and to stir the deep sorrows and despairing in the people that are there. 
he who has Lazarus settled in his belly and feels very self-satisfied. And Jesus comes at that creature and says, in that moment, stop it! If you want to pick on someone, pick on me. And steps forward, and I imagine it like the gauntlet that he takes and he smacks the beast across the face. It's the challenge. And if you'll indulge this a little further, I imagine the astonishment in this creature that is poised there and the jaw drops open and the eyes are wide. And in that moment, Jesus darts in his arm and with his hand draws Lazarus out of the very belly of hell, the very belly, the bowels of death. Lazarus, come out. And he struggles forth, but he comes out, let him go, untie him. Well, of course, now the one who has been relieved of his prey is angered in turn. And it's a hideous anger and it's a unrighteous rage that stirs up. He's going to strike back at this man who dares to confront him, dares to challenge him. He's going to put out this light that is now stinging his eyes. He's going to destroy, but when he destroys, it's not going to be an easy death. He's not going to swallow him up like Lazarus. He's going to make him suffer. He's going to crush him. He's going to tear him limb from limb. He's going to make him suffer and then die. He will swallow him up with great satisfaction when the time comes. And if you know what follows, at the end of chapter 11, there will be a gathering together to determine that Jesus needs to be put to death. There will be a further determination at the start of the next chapter that even Lazarus should be put back to death because he's a sign and people are coming to believe in Jesus. We know that what Jesus has done is not the resurrection at the last day, not what Martha was confident in when her brother would rise again. Lazarus will die again. He's been resuscitated. There will be a day when he will come to the grave and this time he will be dying in the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. But for now, it's a sign. Sometimes when we say, well, he raised Lazarus, why doesn't he raise my my mother, my father, my brother, my son, my loved one? Well, this was a sign. There are miracles that happen, but there are miracles that are signs of the power and the life that is there. They're not, we're not going to see them always. They've got to do with God's plan and His glory. And there is a glory that is coming of this. Who would understand, even when Lazarus is raised and there's great rejoicing, that such a fury would come against Jesus? He will be broken down. He will be beaten He will be scourged. He will be crucified. He will be denied by those closest to him. He will be swallowed up by death and the light will disappear from this world. Well, we can't see it anymore. But this is the light that shines in darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. 
and down in the very bowels of hell. We know that on the third day there will be the sound that begins to reverberate. And there in those very depths of darkness will come that cry. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believes in me shall never die. And death will be trampled down by death. And there will be the raising up. And that great and hideous creature will be seen if you look at the eastern icons as the withered little creature underneath the crossed wood on which the risen Lord stands. Satan's doom is writ, as Luther put it. The beast continues to try in our day even to devour him and his own, to consume us by fear, by despair, by separation and affliction of body, mind, and soul. As he did once swallow up the light, he would consume that life, that light, and our hope. But the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The suffering that we endure is there not because the Lord does not care, but somehow it's gathered up in the mystery of his love. That in the midst of our struggles, we are to come to the cross. We are to let him gather up all things in himself, in Christ crucified. Confident that he does share our sorrows. And that by his precious blood, they are redeemed. We don't know the duration. We don't know how he brings about. We don't know what we will see in this life and what we will see in only into eternity, but God's promises are trustworthy and true. He does not leave us. He does not forsake us. All things are gathered in that heart of perfect love. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus wept. The shortest of verses and yet in that contained our hope, our confidence, the consolation of his love.